You brings you back. It really brings you back. Uh, well-intentioned intro. Good evening, everybody. My name is Michael Cohen. Allow me to welcome you to the 18th edition or the 18th episode, excuse me, of a Messian podcast. Uh, I'm those also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. And without further ado, I'd like to bring in my partner on this podcast, Sam Maxwell. What's up, buddy? Hey, what's going on? You know, another day, another dollar, just driving around Colorado. That's what I do for a living right now uh, until I drive around a different region. I hear you. Uh, and, and when are you making your, your grand return to New York? To New York? you have any well, ideas? Well, I'm going to segue... I'm going to segue back over to uh, New York City about September 15th. I'm going to uh, rent from the Philly region of Lyft, and that covers New Jersey as well. So uh, luckily, because they put a cap on it, one, I would need my own car in New York City, and two, they put a cap on applying to Lyft. Uh, There's a little bit of wiggle room here so I can – keep on earning what I've, I've been getting used to over here while uh, being back in the Northeast. Excellent. Uh, at some point this evening, we hope to have our third partner in crime join the show, Rich Sparago. Uh, as of right now, he's still a little caught up with work, uh, real life. As they say on the radio shows, this is the candy store. That said, let's get busy and let's jump right in with David Wright, uh, the captain of the Mets. He's due to join the team in San Francisco uh, this weekend. Uh, his rehab assignment uh, was due to be up within two days. As we know, Las Vegas' season is winding down. Uh, you know, so the, the Mets are in somewhat of a situation where they were able to manipulate the system, so to say, put that one in quotes, uh, meaning they can activate him at any time. And that certainly has insurance purposes behind it and whatnot. You know, I'm not speculating or I'm not accusing, but the captain's coming back, Sam. What do you think? I mean, it's going to be a nice sight, and hopefully he's able to play through everything. I mean, that's that's always the caveat here when it comes to David Wright is, is this literally just them focusing on a swan song? Um, Is he going to try to come back next year? Obviously, we know that David Wright – wants to keep playing as long as he believes his body is capable of. The more you read about what he goes through just to even get his body ready and how some days he wakes up stiff as heck, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, you've got to give it to the guy for sure. It's just like, you got to wonder how much farther can, can he go? But, the thing is, is that every time we think David Wright's done, he comes back and, and uh, delivers a crazy home run in his first attack. So, I mean, you know, the story's not over, and hopefully the bones and the fates don't tell him it's over anytime soon. Well, as per the club, and I'm paraphrasing here, one of the three-headed monsters said that uh, he did not reach any of his vigorous objectives. Uh, I'm sure I'm not getting that quote down pat, but nevertheless, it paints the picture of, of what he has to go through in order to prepare. Even before the season, we knew we, he, that he was spending upwards of maybe two hours prior to every game uh, just to get ready for nine innings of work. Uh, that regimen has perhaps increased twofold. You know, 
so he's certainly not going to play this weekend. Famous last words, right? Uh, I heard it speculated on SNY that he might make it uh, an appearance somewhere around September 7th, give or take a game. I'm more worried about his health going forward, uh, him as a husband and as a father and a family man, just a, a human being. I don't want to see him worsen his situation or condition. Uh, I, I want him to have a, a, a superior quality of life, raising children. Uh, and and that, a lot, that involves a lot of back work, you know. Uh, so, you know, I'll throw it right back to you, Sam. Any other, you know, lasting impressions of this situation? Well, I think, for one, we're not in a tenant race, so it lends itself to experiment with what Wright can do coming off the bench, um, which is basically going to be his role going forward, and especially we got Todd Frazier one more year. Uh, Todd Frazier seems to be hitting his stride. We know exactly what, what uh, uh, we get from him. But I think that when it's, when it's all said and done, you're probably not going to see him in the field too much because that would just um, – make everything worse and, and uh, possible that he, he doesn't survive all of this uh, as, as a baseball player. And I, I think that um, the only time you're probably ever going to see him out there is most certainly 100% a symbolic Reyes Wright thing, which it's like all, all, all of a sudden it's like, oh, God, you guys, that's all this entire thing has been working towards. And hey, you know, to their credit, they they've been wanting this for two years. And you know, Reyes came in after Ray was injured. So from a symbolic standpoint, it, it kind of sucks that like it's these little victories that we get. But like I I like it, and that's why the uh, the Wilpons probably understand the manipulation market. So you know, what are you gonna do except soak it up and and kind of. It's, it's, you know, it, it's weird. You hate, you're, you're going to hate on it for the Wilpons trying to manipulate you, but then you're going to be like, but there's also a reason to try to do this because it is symbolic. You know, I know Reyes is a very controversial character at this point, but um, in many ways, and on, on, uh, on the field and off, and and on the field, uh, the field just magnifies the off-the-field stuff. Um you know, he's been performing better lately. And, and here's a little segue, I guess. We're, we're segueing a little bit to, to Reyes. He's certainly been performing better lately, doing his ever, uh, you know, ever so uh, creep up to 200 in the late part of the season. But that's the whole thing. I mean, he's a big reason why we're not competing right now is because, you know, he he wasn't there to help us win games at the beginning. He was one of the worst stretches you'll ever see. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough thing because I believe it was a two-year deal, and, you know, unless they're going to eat it, um, he's not going anywhere. And, you know, hopefully he can start off better if this is the role that they are preparing for him. Because, and, and, you know, you got to wipe that, that talk out of him, you know, and maybe Wright could be that leader that Jose never was yet again talking to him. <laughs> about, you know, just about the kind of, like the role that we're now put into on this team and this franchise and how, like, I understand where Jose's coming from, and I don't think it's necessarily backhanded, but, like, you were talking it up in the offseason 
how you are now accepting of this role, you whatever's good for the team. And, and but like, I do. Oh, I, I, I did even think like to myself, like in the back of my head, even though I, I was like, oh, he'll be fine in this role. I did think to myself, yeah, but Jose needs reps. Um, and it's crazy to say he would be a starring player right now if he actually got those reps. But that's what Jose is saying, and I kind of understand where he's coming from. But you don't, you know, you you can't play, uh, you know, you can't play both sides really with it. And and anyway, there's a little bit of digression with Jose Reyes, but you know, Jose uh, Reyes and David Wright are paired together in that era of of the team, and and they are trying to hold on to it. Um, there's you know, swan songs galore right now. Who knows? about Reyes. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. But I definitely think that is a big part of of this whole September swoon. I, I, I don't doubt it. It certainly looks like, you know, yeah, yeah, they were brought up together, and they, it certainly looks like they're going to be put to bed together. So let, let's just stay with uh, topical news for the moment. Uh, goodbye, Joey Bats. Nice seeing you. You know, it's been great. It hasn't been that great. 83 games with the Mets, wound up batting 204. You know, the fact that the Mets actually admitted that they were considering holding on to him entering next season, uh, that really made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, I'm glad he's gone. Nothing personal. It's just that he's wasting space, valuable space that other players can be uh, utilizing. So bye-bye, Joey Bats. What do you say? Well, he seemed a class act for one. Um, I thought that they got a lot out of that 204 batting effort. Uh, if you look at it, I mean, he had double-digit home runs and closing in on 15, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And that's definitely more than you expected out of out of him. 204 batting average notwithstanding. Um, you know, I'm like if they were thinking of keeping him, then. Are they thinking of keeping Austin Jackson, man? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I'd love to see how that's going to play out. Uh, you know what? Well, I mean, you got to get credit where credit's due about the fact that Austin Jackson has performed well. Um, and maybe, you know, he's fighting for his baseball life for sure, and he's fighting for a contract next year. Um, but we have not resolved the Cespedes situation, and that won't be resolved uh, probably ever. So, I don't know. I mean, who knows? I, I, I don't think it's necessary. It's obviously not the most important conversation to be had about the 2018 New York Mets right now. But, um, you know, uh, considering they're still, they nickel and dump all the time, I could see them bringing him back. Uh, you, you know what? I, I wanted to get into this later in the show, but, you know, you brought up uh, – uh, 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 a push button phrase there, uh, nickel and diming. You know, you look at you, you look at this roster, and and there's three players in particular: Jason Vargas, Todd Frazier, whom you already mentioned, and, and Swarzak. They're signed through next year, and we have Jay Bruce who signed through 2020. Uh, to me, that's a lot of dead weight. Uh, you know, and, and it already defines how this roster is going to be made up heading into next season. Uh, and quite frankly, it's a little disturbing considering we don't have an executive in place 
and, and B, what this executive might feel about the situation regarding these contracts. Uh, Frazier, I, I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, you know, that's definitely a contract we need to eat. Uh, Swarzak and, and Vargas, perhaps not so easily easily done. Uh, let's stick with Jason Vargas. Will the real Jason Vargas please stand up? Uh, let's face it, he got paid for half a good season last year with Kansas City. But in his last four starts, after a dreadful start with the Mets, I should say, his last four starts, he's pitched 22.2 innings, uh, has allowed 18 hits with only five earned runs allowed. He's walked five and struck out 18 uh, for 2.02 ERA. And, again, that's over his last four starts. Otherwise, over the season, He's five and eight with the uh, excuse me with the six five six ERA and a one five seven WHIP. Uh, Jason Vargas, you know, he, he's having he's having that stretch like he did last year where you know uh, this, this team is inclined to, to to hang their hat on and and that 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 disturbs me because I, I just want this team rid of players like this, Sam. Well. I mean, I think he was injured at the beginning of the season. I know we know he actually was injured at the beginning of the season, but, I mean, I don't think he ever really hit his stride. Uh, he got injured again even before uh, he had really settled into anything. Um, and now I think where we're seeing is him getting his reps in, finally. Um, I'm not, I forget exactly how many starts he's had since he was last injured, but it's been a few at this point, maybe even into the double digits. And... You know, maybe it might be the Zach Wheeler effect, except I don't think Jason Vargas is as – I don't think the potential is there for uh, as as it is for what we're seeing Zach Wheeler do, which is just astounding. It's just so, so happy that we're getting to see the, the fruition. And, you know, he asked – I, I know I just – uh, you know, I'm going to get back to Jason Vargas in a second, but just to digress a bit, uh, Zach Wheeler asked to be a Met, and he's met many opportunities. They've had many opportunities to – uh, not fulfill that request, and they've kept true to their word. So that's kind of, that's something interesting, you know. When uh, when people look like they want to be part of the Mets family, maybe that's not one thing you might have to say about about the Will Ponds, and maybe they are learning that there is something to uh, what this, you know what the feeling of being a Met is. So maybe we. We have to be optimistic and take some signs, even though everything is once again falling apart around us. And um, I, I know I said I was going to get back to Jason Vargas, but this reminds me, since I did mention the World Fund, is any of this reminding you of 1978 into 1979, Mike? Good question. Different circumstances. Uh, they, the, the, the club, the executives, the ownership, and Donald Grant, uh, Lorenzo de Relay, they were doing things for wholly different reasons. Uh, they were also resistive to the new age in baseball, meaning free agency. Uh, they were looking to sell the team. They were actively looking to sell the team by that time. So I, I have trouble comparing one scenario to the other. Uh, wholly different uh you know, and, and the Wilpons are in are in the situation they are uh, through different machinations and, and of their own doing, uh, and undoing for that matter. Uh, 78, 79, 
Joe McDonald was the general manager at the time, and, you know, he was ordered pretty much to strip it down, make the conversion away from the older guys, uh, and start renewing the roster. And, you know, by the time the Wilpons and Doubleday purchased the team, he left behind a nice little clutch of players that would eventually come up through the system and help that 86 team, like Jesse Orozco and Wally Backman and uh, and a few others that were drafted in the 70s under Joe McDonald, the late 70s under Joe McDonald. So, you know, I saw a, a transition in place uh well, it, it was still slow. The transition was slow and and painstaking. But uh, again, I have trouble comparing that those two years and, and that transition period uh, situation that we're in now with with, with this ownership. There's just different reasons, different scenarios. I, I, I get what you're saying. Though. It, it, I, would I totally. it would be ironic after after you just said that if. Um, the Will Ponds this off season to start actively shopping the team. But that's that's complete speculation on my part. That's not even that's absolute uh there's nothing to back up any of that. I I have nothing, no source. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I don't think they ha- they would have a shortage of willing buyers. Uh I think they'd be lining up around the block to purchase this team. Uh, and somebody would indeed meet their price. But, you know, that's fantasy. They're not going to sell this team. Fred said repeatedly over the years, if not over the decades, that they love owning the Mets and they plan on keeping it within the family uh, for many years, decades, and centuries to come. You know, uh, Jeff's grandchildren will own this team if they have their way. Well, of course, let's also not forget that they lost a, a, a nice chunk of ownership uh, trying to get themselves out of that Madoff mess. I think they sold upwards of, what, a quarter of the team that is no longer in their hands. Yes. Yeah. But they're still not out of it, though. I mean, like, no. you know, when you really look at, like, the finances, like, how how much better are they going to be debt-wise over the next few years, even if they refinance? Well, I mean, they, they lost their golden goose. You know, they had a way of financing all their shenanigans prior or during Madoff, during the Madoff years. Now, uh, they're wholly reliant on attendance. And and that's my biggest beef with them, and that's why I need an executive in place post-haste. Because most of their decisions, you know, retaining older guys and starting this one over that one, maybe or C, you know, those are decisions made wholly on keeping people, you know, interested and going to the games. Because they need attendance more now than ever before in their tenure as owners. And, and and you know, the discovery process and, and who they actually hire as an executive is going to tell me everything. Are they going to hire? Are they going to seek out a strong-minded, a strong-willed, a, an executive with a backbone? Or are they just going to seek out another yes-man? You know, so that's going to tell me a lot. Tell me a lot. But you know what? We, we've digressed. I want to keep this tidy. I want to get back on the mound. Finish up on Jason Vargas. Any a, any other opinions? Because I do want to hit the mound and a couple other pitches before we wrap this up. No, I mean, you know, in conclusion, I think he's hitting his stride. I, you know, I think he's probably, you know, a four ERA guy. Back in the 
the rotation fellow, and that's something he he is valuable going into next season. If you know they're on, he's on this contract, and uh, one, if he pitches well, he helps the team, and two, if he pitches well, and the team's not doing well, they trade him next year. So there's a lot of different ways Jason Vargas could be valuable to the team next year. There you go, folks. Sam and I are on opposite sides of the, uh, of the fence on this one. Uh, I want them gone. Uh, these are just some crap contracts that I need disappeared from Mets' existence in order for this team to move forward. Let's get to another pitcher that I've been, you know, he's just been sticking in my craw this season after that stupidity last year of bulking up and gaining a million pounds in order to be Superman. And we're talking about Noah Syndergaard. To this point in this season, so far, and I'm only talking about this season because last week I threw up stats for his career as a Met, and I, I was nice about it, and I threw out last season. This season alone, he's still only averaging 5.2 innings pitched. And I made the joke last week, you know, I, it's not wrong to demand more out of a Marvel comic superhero. By the fifth inning, mid-fifth inning, you know, or even sixth innings, he's expended his 100 pitches, He's gassed, and he's done. Now, he's bound, he's coming back from obvious injury last season. You know, I'm sure that's playing a part. But otherwise, what gives? And, and I'll point to his lack of, lack of craftsmanship. Nothing more, nothing less. He still has a lack of craftsmanship, and I think he still has a lot to learn in that respect. I need more than 5-2. 5.2 innings pitching, what I'm saying, Sam. Uh, yeah, you know, and this is not an indictment on the kind of person Noah is and, and um, what I'm about to say about it. It just seems to me that Jake, Jacob DeGrom is the only one who hasn't gotten caught up in his own shit. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> okay. that's basically it. So like, and... What what I noticed about Noah's form right now, doesn't it look like he's dirt throwing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I do, actually. I don't know. It's just a situation. I mean, I'm not going to get nitpicky. He's giving up more hits than innings pitch. To me, that's always uh, a warning sign. That's one of my favorite comparisons for a pitcher. Uh, and, and I just don't like it. And, again, he's coming back from injury last season, so I'm trying to be nice about it. Uh, but even if you throw out last season, over his career, he's still only averaging six innings a start, and I just need a little bit more. Uh, let's move on. Uh, there's a couple other pitchers, Robert Gestelman and Seth Lugo. Earlier this season, or even entering this season, they said they had uh, innings limits for these guys. Uh, and with regard to Robin Gisellman, I got to laugh because they're using him a la Terry Collins. Gisellman, uh leads, I, I hope I'm wording this correctly, let's just call it all relievers with at least 55 or 60 appearances this year. Robin Gisellman leads them in, in his pitch with 70. Uh, and, and, you know, innings, innings limits out the window. Eight saves. Uh, what else can I say about him? He's currently uh, posting a 3.57 ERA and a 1.20 whip. Uh, he is the closer at the moment. 
do you see him as a potential candidate as closer in the future, Sam? Yeah, I do. I think if he's having success, you got to keep him keep him going with there. Um, I think with you know the whole innings limit thing, um, the Mets may never lead the league in wins, but they always lead uh, lead the league in relief appearances. So. Um, I think that may correlate with the losses that pile up, but uh, right now it's it's working. The, the, the whip is a little high, uh, but you know he's not a strikeout pitcher, so he's gonna he, you know he's depending on the ball being put in play this moment. So I can I guess deal with uh, 1.20. It's still on the low end, and once you're getting into like 1.4, that's when I'm really concerned about a reliever. You know. Sometimes with, sometimes with relievers, those numbers can skew upwards and skew too low uh, because, you know, they're they're averaging or seeing per nine innings, but they don't ever do per, per nine innings. So, you know, I, I think that uh, – I, I see a lot of people talking up Drew Smith. You know, Drew Smith's been pretty fantastic since he, he got there. Uh, it's only been like ten innings I think he's, he's performed so far, but – uh, I think there's, you know, competition's going to be some friendly competition when it comes to to the closer situation going forward. Competition's going to be a good thing. Bobby Wall, you know, a couple of guys. Uh, here's the actual numbers. Robert Selman only has 57 appearances, but like I say, 70.2 innings pitched. That's That leads the National League, and it's third in the major leagues. Uh, we're at the point where this is a rather inconsequential season. I think it's time to curtail his innings. Why? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay open to the modern way of thinking, if for nothing else. But, Sam, you know what? I disagree. I want him out of the closer's role. I want the Mets to concentrate on finding somebody uh, for that role other than Giselle. I, I'd, I'd rather have him uh, utilized uh, in, in another capacity. Uh, Seth Lugo, he he was included in this innings, innings limits, uh, but he's fine. Uh, no starts since June. Uh, last year, he threw 101 innings. He currently is up to uh, 88 innings pitched with a nifty 2.86 ERA. Uh, but, uh, again, he's bouncing back from a down year last season. Uh, I got no issues there. I just say continue what you're doing. Uh, leave him in the role that he's in, and and just rethink both of these guys' roles heading into next season. Seth Lugo, what say you? I think that forever and ever in Mets lore, Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman will be tied together, and that there will be articles written when one or the other leaves the team about how Lugo and Gazelman are no more. The pairing of Lugo and Gazelman are no more. It's it's fascinating to me that you know it, 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 these these guys have become horses for this team, and none of us knew who these people were basically in June of 2016. And I I like what I've seen out of Seth. I think that sometimes you know he he can uh, get a little flat with the ball, uh, but. When he, his stuff is really moving, he's, he's as smart out there as anybody. And and you have pitchers out there. You know, we were just complaining about Cindergard being too much of a thrower right now. Um, Cindergard 
was on his way to thinking like a like a pitcher, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, he just wanted to be a muscle man. Um, maybe like you keep alluding to because of the whole superhero thing. But I uh, I I think that I have no problems with what Seth Lugo has done. There are plenty of other places to point other than either Seth Lugo or Robert Gazelman. Both have been absolutely fantastic additions to the team since they came up. And you could really point to being one of the key uh, moves. I, I don't know exactly who drafted them, but consist, you know, like pointing at the Sandy Alderson era, uh, that, that is, uh, that's paying dividends right now. You know, once upon a time, we spoke with two other gentlemen in the same way, two peas in a pod, Henry, uh, Henry McGeer and Jerry is familiar. They were born a day apart. Uh, uh, they, they could have been, you know, twins for all anybody knew. Uh, and, and you said it best. And uh, speaking, of which, speaking are, of which, yeah. and speaking of which, Jerry's familiar is gone, but Henry Mejia is, will be returning next year. <laughs> so much for the rules, right? So much for that lifetime ban from baseball. Hey, wherever life, you know, takes him, I wish him luck. So if he makes it, he makes it. If he doesn't, well, I hope he stays gainfully employed doing something else. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think that it was the first circumstance, right? Am I correct? What, uh, that a player got banned for life? I believe he was the first one, yeah. yeah. So there'll be books written about what happened. I mean, like, you know. <laughs> a, most, a most dubious <laughs> distinction. Well, okay, so based off of the history, let, let, let's uh, relitigate real quick. Um, so we're talking, we're talking uh, he said that he accepted the first one. The second one he started crying about it. And then the third one, he basically said that they framed him. Um, yeah. And you know. so now. So now he went. They went to an arbitrator, and they've accepted it. You know, I, I I'm going to be very curious. That that, that is going to be a very curious situation to hear. You know, I really. I, this is a whole digression as well, but it just brings up how um, unhappy I am with the job that Manfred has been doing over there because it's like. The first lifetime ban, and it happens under Manfred's watch, and he's being reinstated immediately. So it's like, what the what the hell is going on over there, Manfred? Mister Manfred has no fan uh, in me. I'll say that very very clearly. I just I despise many, if not all, of these rules change rule changes under under his. Uh, under his stewardship. But uh, let, let's see if we can make ourselves happier. Let's get back to the bats. Let's talk about Michael Conforto. Uh, Todd Frazier and Jay Bruce are both back in the lineup. Now that Michael Conforto has protection again, I guess we can get a better sense of what he still potentially may be. To date, he's slashing 233, 346, and is slugging four, oh, 17 doubles and 19 home runs and 430 at-bats with 53 RBI. Uh, he set a standard for himself. He's not meeting that standard, and 
you might say Metsfield is just riddled with angst over it. What do you say? Here's the thing about how you know that he's starting to hit better. That slugging is creeping up. Now, that's been below 400 for a very long time, and now it's 405. That's a great sign, number one. Number two, what's so interesting about Michael Conforto is that even when he was, he was um, not performing properly, he was still slashing fouls the opposite way, if you will. Um, he, he practices, you know, taking the ball the other way, which helps him when he's on spray the whole field. So, you know, you're seeing, and I think, you know, you allude to it, you alluded to it with Todd Frazier and Jay Bruce, um, and I, I almost called him Jason Bruce, weirdly enough, but uh, <laughs> I think that, that um, it's clear that, you know, this lineup falls apart without all of these hitters, you know? It's just what happened earlier in the year, and... The Mets have no contingency like other teams, it seems. You know, basically what ends up happening is that they're one particular team, and then all of a sudden two or three guys go down, and instead of adjusting on the fly, which, you know, is a hard thing to do, but other teams seem to be able to do it somewhat, so you start playing a different type of baseball because you don't have the same type of lineup. Um, the Mets just seem to really do well when everything is intact, and every year we go, well, we hope everything stays intact, and it's a crapshoot. And even when they do get, you know, get it together, it's because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a miracle over the last two months of 2015-2016. So, they got to figure it out, man. Yeah, because part of that is, you know, that one month that they do play stellar baseball and those two and three months out of the season where they play reasonably good baseball, uh, you know, the glass is always half full. Well, look, this is what we're capable of. And, uh, you know, people we have coming back off the disabled list are tantamount to signing free agents and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a vicious cycle. And uh, nothing's going to change until – the organization makes a dramatic break and goes cold turkey on whatever standing operating procedure it is that they have in place. I just wanted to throw that in there. I I feel almost obligated because some of these guys have gone overlooked, especially one in particular. I feel obligated to, to pay the disabled list a visit. Let's bring up guys like Travis Darneau. Yeah, we haven't mentioned him all season now, have we? Uh, it's seemingly never-ending problem behind the plate. Uh, he's still in the picture for next season, but, you know, regarding a, a receiver, a catcher, uh, include Travis Darno with whatever opinion you might have taking place behind the plate. Uh, I, I don't know who this person is. Who are you? What? Who is that? <laughs> Travis Darnell. Anyway. Some guy we acquired from Toronto. I, 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 I mean, how many is, is Miserocco's contract up? Yeah, he's going to be a free agent, you know, so that sort of uh, adds 
to the uh, dilemma the Mets have behind the plate. Do you retain him? Do you let him walk away? Again, you know, Darno is still part of this picture. Ploiecki's play is going to certainly who's, uh, who's influence. Who's the free agent? Who's the, who, who's the catcher? Free, who's the, who are the, the free agent catchers, if any? Heading into the off season, couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I would imagine that uh, you, uh, you have the internet, so see if you can type that in. I'm not even going to bother. bother. You know why? Because they're not going to do anything behind the plate. It it is what it is. They're probably going to stick with Kolecki. They're probably going to stick with Darno for at least another season because they're controllable. Listen, I will take take Plaw because I think that when he, you know, when he actually gets a chance to settle in, he seems to start, you know, like like he's figuring something out at the end of these, these seasons. Um, you, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I think that uh, I think I'm tired of talking about catcher. <laughs> Are, aren't we? Here's another name on the disabled list. Juan Lagares. Uh, where do you where, where does he or how does he re-enter the fold? And does Austin Jackson have anything to do with this? Would you rather stick with Austin Jackson moving forward, or would you rather brush him aside and, and, and try to reconfigure Juan Lagares into the equation? I know Austin Jackson is uh, obviously older, but he's also been pretty impressive in center field. I've liked what I've seen. Um, he's staying healthy. He, I think he has more of a track record than Juan of staying healthy. He's hitting better than Juan. I think that I'm I'm it's, it's it's just getting I'm at my wit's end with some of these guys. I mean, we're talking five seasons now since he won the Gold Glove, since he was healthy enough to win the Gold Glove. So you you have to consider like what exactly can you get out of these guys that isn't just dead weight insurance money that we you know which is which is a, you know, a big controversy to even say, insurance money, insurance money. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I, I'm very, very, uh, I have just no idea um, what these guys are going to do. I mean, I do know, but that's what makes it so frustrating, is knowing. There you go. Uh, and, and, and that's why an executive has to come in once again and change this whole way of thinking and doing business. It's amazing. And you answered these questions exactly the way I wanted you to answer them because we're dumbfounded already with these situations. It's over and over and over again. So you answered them perfectly. It's the situation. And that these two guys... Uh, you know, are just the epitome of that. Uh, maybe I'm just cranky today. I say this in jest. Ahmed Rosario, does this kid, uh, does he slide to her? Why, when he's running the bases, do I feel like I'm watching Wesley Snipes in Major League? Why? Tell me. He is one of my favorite uh, baseball roles of all time. Um, Wesley Snipes, fantastic in that movie. Nothing against Omar Epps, but he will always be, you know, the Willie Mays Hayes. Um, And 
I I think uh, you know in terms of in terms of Rosario, I think that he is he's still you know hitting his stride and and he is getting better. Um, you know, one thing you got to say about Wesley Snipes, Willie Mays Hayes, is that he hustles. You know, he he, he might have uh, he might have swung at too many breaking pitches, but. Yeah, but why is he consistently coming up six inches short, sliding into second base? Or even third base, for that matter. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, I don't know. They, it's It goes back to the thing we talked about fundamentals, is that he's not being taught these things. You know, nobody's picking up on this stuff. Nope, nobody yeah. is catching it in the minor leagues. Mind you, there might also be less. Uh, uh, the the um, uh, you know the catchers are not going to be as good obviously in the minor league, so he's going to make it. But somebody still needs to say, "Hey, kid, that's that's an out in the majors." So it really it's a it's just it's a fundamental it's a fundamental thing for for the organization. It's just it's it, it's glaring. It's a glaring glaring. Uh, a testament to how poor the organization is at developing these guys. And then, you know, we haven't even talked about the whole Peter Alonzo, Dominic Smith conundrum. The floor is yours. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily arguing whether or not Peter Alonzo needs to be up or not, but, like, you look at what, you know, we were playing the same game with Dominic Smith a few years ago, and now here Dominic Smith is unable to get into any sort of groove. He's a very talented kid, and yet it was supposed to be his this year, and now all of a sudden, because of the log jam in the outfield, uh, we're talking about Jaber's taking over at first base for the next few years. And, like, I just don't understand why they stop trusting these kids so fast and don't develop anybody. It's just... So frustrating, dude, and it's it just like they're gonna mess the whole thing up with Pete Alonso too. I don't disagree. They've been doing it for a long time, not just this crop of youngsters, but the one preceding it and the one preceding that one. Uh, it's a little ponderous, it really is. But with regards to Peter Alonso, uh, I agree with the decision not to promote him. Uh, perhaps not for the same reasons the Mets are thinking, uh, but the kid's not ready. Let's just stick with baseball. Uh, sure, he's had a nice season uh, slugging-wise, but power hitters will do that. They will hit a fastball. It doesn't matter who's delivering it. They will hit it, and that's what he's done. But where he batted 314 at Binghamton, dropped 76 points or somewhere around there, down to 238, 230-something with Las Vegas, which is supposed to be a hitter's lead. His on-base percentage plummeted by 100 points. And his defense, well, it's lacking, to say the least. So to rush him, to flush him, to give him inconsistent opportunities in a crowded situation, uh, it would have just thrown another log on the fire of folly. We would have been all over the Mets for mishandling the situation. And therefore I say let Peter Alonso go into the offseason happy that he had a, a great campaign and, and and he has a bright future ahead. What I will bring up, though, and this is a little bit of a digression, but tell me what you think of this. 
Pietro Alonso's agent. Since when do we hear agents speak out against organizations on a regular? It's already happened twice this season. The Grom's agent and now Peter Alonso's agent. You know, I, I always say once you, is an event. You, uh, twice can is you a... give me? Can you give me some context with one first uh, Degrom and then two what Peter Alonso's agent said? Uh, it was mid-season, uh, perhaps in July, where Degrom's agent. Uh, no, it was leading into the into the trade deadline. Uh, and, and the whole contract negotiation and whatnot, and, and the agent spoke up and, and basically said, look, if you have no intentions of signing this guy long-term, perhaps you might do us a favor and trade us. And I'm just paraphrasing the situation. Right. Uh, okay. But that, yeah, came really- in, that came and went, and now we have this situation where a lot of those agents are speaking up. We're disappointed in the organization's decisions, Blah, blah, blah. But what I'm saying, my point is, is is that now agents feel it's okay to speak out against Mets ownership. Whereas, you know, this is not a common occurrence anywhere. But now it's happened twice. And I say once is an event, twice is a coincidence, three times is a trend. Well, I so would say, I would say this, though. Scott, Scott Boris has always been willing to talk out and make fun of the Mets' ownership. Well, I, I, I keep him out of the conversation because of he, you know, he's such a bombastic individual, but he's a hell of an agent. But I leave him out of it, you know, because he, he's done that with the Mets for so long. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're talking about, from what I understand, pretty you know, low-key representation on, the, on, on behalf of DeGrom and, and Alonzo. And my only point is, you know, is this going to start a trend where agents are just going to pop off at every wrong turn? You know, I mean, and that's I mean, to a media Are agents doing this uh, against other teams, or are people, or maybe people are just fed up with this team? And maybe well, everywhere across the board, across the board, agents for these players that are extremely talented that they feel should get a better break and, 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 and also better development are put with the Mets organizations and just fall flat on their face and then, and then they go out into the world of baseball with uh, uh, scarred by their experience with the Mets and then they uh, don't have a baseball career at all. So, you know, maybe it's time, a high time that uh, on a smaller level people start saying some shit. I don't know. Forget about all the baseball and forget about Scott Bars. You know, what I'm saying has happened twice here now, and I don't want to see it become a trend. It's a little disturbing to me. It really so is. You, so you, 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 have a, you have a big issue with it, but what if it? What if it also? I mean, like I, I, I hear what you're saying that you want it to, to stay how, how, level. How common? How common has this been in Mets history? Name name an instance last year, the year prior. Name an instance in the last five years. Name an instance in the last ten years. Name an instance right. in the last so, twenty twenty five years where not one but two agents speak no, you're, against. You're absolutely right. So who who is that once again an indictment on? And and like the trend is that. People are fed up with the Wilsons. 
Well, true, yeah. But and and that's my point. These, that's my that's my point in the sense that these guys more and more are going to be uh, inclined to just take their pop, their, their shots. And, and I, I, I don't see any good coming out of this. In fact, I, I see getting worse with, at every oh, yeah, long term. So as long as they continue to make bad decisions, it's not just going to be us railing against them. It's not just going to be us and the media railing against them. It's going to be us, the media, and agents railing against them. And, you know, who who knows who else? It, it's actually going to get maybe, pretty close. Maybe he'll sell the team because of it, man. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. That, uh, I don't know. I doubt it. You really think they care? I, they do. They've proven it. They're paranoid. I don't know. Let's have some fun. You want to talk numbers? Yeah, let's talk numbers, baby. All well, right. First of all, we just uh, talked the 2018 season, so we've covered that already. <laughs> well... Further reflections on the 2017 uh, on the 2017 season. Let's start there. Or 2018. You know what? I'm just confused. I don't know where I was going with that. Let's get back to the numbers. (laughs) Number 18. In celebration of episode 18, we go back into the Delorean land on number 18 in Mets history. Uh, Quite a selection of players here. I'm not going to go through them all. Do you have the list in front of you? I do. Let's do, like. Do you uh, mind if we start with 1918 first? I go for it, man. All right. I don't. I don't have like because I had to take screenshots. I really just have records in front of me. But we're going to start with the 1918 Brooklyn Robins, who finished fifth in the National League with a 57-69 record. Uh, Wilbert Robin Robinson, whose uh, last name is the uh, reason for the nickname of the team at the time. Um, he was the, uh, the the manager, and they were seventh out of eighth with the measly off. Oh. oh my God, dude, dude, this is awful. I can't believe I'm about to say this number, Mike. Eighty-three thousand eight hundred thirty-one people attended, <laughs> and that was still seventh of eighth in 1918. Your Brook, your, your Brooklyn team, everybody from uh, from 1918. Do you have any thoughts, Mike? Uh, I'll bounce one off. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the New York Giants led the National League in attendance that season with a quarter of a million, 256,000. Let's not forget, you know, this is our entry into World War One. So, you know, conditions here stateside have changed, are changing dramatically at the time. But uh, with regards to that 1918 Dodgers team, uh, it featured three Hall of Famers. Zach Wheat, he batted three fifty five that year, but he was a, a Dodger mainstay at that point. Burley Grimes was just beginning his career. This was his first season with the Dodgers, and he led the league with 40 starts. Could you imagine that? Uh, and Rube McCard, another future Hall of Famer, uh, but he was down-ticking at this point in his career. So three Hall of Famers on that Dodgers team, or the Robins, I should say. The Dodgers. But, uh, I mean, they got, they got <laughs> the same beat. They got the same beat. Um, all right, so I unfortunately, yeah, yeah, so I'm glad that you mentioned the attendance because in my screenshots, I actually didn't have them uh, listed there, but uh, they finished second in the National League, the Giants, with a 71-53 record in 1918, um, so unfortunately, they, they missed the cutoff. Uh, Mike, what, what what say you about John McGraw's 1918 New York Giants? Well, they had just lost the World Series the year prior. Uh, this year, they fall short to the Cubs, who win the pennant. 
Uh, like I said, they the, uh, the Giants led the National League in attendance that season with a quarter of a million persons. Jim Thorpe is still on the team, not contributing much, if, if at all. Uh, he's 31 years old. But the team features an 18-year-old Wade Hoyt, future Hall of Famer, who goes on to have a stellar career with the New York Yankees. Uh, but he was a Brooklyn kid. He was born right here in Brooklyn, uh, and he went to Erasmus High School on Flatbush Avenue in Church. Uh, speaking of the Yankees, just a little quick tidbit. Miller Huggins uh, had a 60-62 record finishing fourth for the 1918 New York Yankees. Um, I don't have in front of me where they played, but, uh, uh, oh, yes, yeah, the Polo Grounds. What am I talking about? Uh, just for an honorable mention, we had to, we have to mention – the 1918 Boston Red Sox, who beat the Chicago Cubs 4-2 in the World Series. They had a 75-51 record and finished first in the American League. How can you talk about 1918 without mentioning 1918? The curse of the Bambino has been broken. Uh, You know, the narrative has has changed, especially in this new century. Uh, So... That's all I'm going to say about that. You know, uh, the narrative has indeed changed. And I wonder how how the really hardcore Red Sox fans react uh, these days when you bring that up. And they'll probably say, what? Excuse me? Yeah. Who? What? I got three World Series in in this century alone. Where do you want to start? Uh, A very intriguing narrative that can be. Uh, But with regards to the Yankees, this is Miller Huggins' first season as manager of the Yankees. Uh, and it's a team that features home run Baker, a famous name. And uh, Dazzy Vance, a very, very brief period of time with the Yankees uh, that was interrupted uh, by the war, like uh, many other people. And look at the schedules. Look at the games. Look at the numbers of games played. You'll see it's a condensed schedule. Uh, yeah. Bob Shaw. Yeah, I, Bob Shaw. I, 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 I was now, wondering the same thing. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So, when when did they start the season, or did they finish it early? Uh, you know what? I didn't I didn't look at the schedule, the dates per se. Uh, I'm not quite sure if they ended early or started late. I I really don't know. I'm not going to pretend like I know either. <laughs> well, number eighteen. Number 18. <laughs> um, yeah, looking at it, I mean, there's the names that uh, – obviously, I think Daryl Strawberry takes the, the cake. The names that uh, pop out to me, George Thur- Thurdor, uh Theodore, excuse me, um, Duffy Dyer, uh, uh, Joel Youngblood, Brett Saberhagen, um, Daryl Hamilton, of course, Art Howe, Marlon Anderson, Jose Valentin, uh, Tim Tuffle, Travis Darno. Uh What say you, Mike? Joe Youngblood was one of my favorite players uh, during those years. Uh, and, you know, he blossomed after he got traded. Uh, so I always found that ironic when you're, when you're young, you know. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. Darrell Strawberry, he, he's the cream of the crop uh, with regards to this list. Uh, man, you know, Things at bats were exciting. They really were. Few people in baseball history made me feel that way, you know, in the midst of the game. Dallas Strawberry was certainly one of them. Uh, and I remember after the trade, his first game back when he was playing with the Dodgers uh, at Shea, 
Frank Viola was pitching that day, and uh, I went to that game. And Chase Stadium rocked. I mean, it was loud, as loud as any game I had ever experienced there. Darryl. Uh, and he homered off of Viola. And let me tell you, Shay got on their feet and roared for Daryl Strawberry's home run around because he ran around the bases. As the roar got louder and louder. Uh, but he got booed the rest of the night. Uh, but don't let anybody kid you. Shea Stadium roared for Daryl that night. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was one of those... Uh, Crowd-wise, one of the best games, one of the best regular season games I was ever at. Uh, but Dallas Strawberry and Joel Youngblood are easily, easily my two favorite players on this list. And I will just say that Moises Alou, uh, too bad we didn't have him earlier in his career, man. That guy was such a good hitter. And I'll always remember him as that, a very, very good, if not great hitter. I one of the things that stands out to me about Daryl Strawberry is that he doesn't look like he should be that powerful. You know, like you know, when you see him in person now, he's obviously he's, he's aged. He's got some weight on him, uh, but mostly, you know, he 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 was such a skinny kid when he was first coming up. You know, and and he would just generate that that little like skinny string bean power, you know, but to me was that he, he had all that power. It was obviously, he was so tall too, that he just looked that skinny, but he was obviously a very muscular kid. Um, yeah. Daryl Hamilton, you know, he was such a, a great role player. And, and I, I believe I forget, I forget exactly how he died, but it was obviously very tragic, uh, early death. Um, Mike, if you could, uh, do, do you remember I do and I don't, you know, things like that. I try to bury out, you know, and suppress. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Uh, I don't like to dwell on that, but yeah, it was it was an unfortunate circumstance. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I I, I think that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think it's both, you know, before our times. But I feel like Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing would have something to say about Felix Mantia. And he was a 1962 New York Met. Um, you know, I, I I unfortunately cannot look it up on the Internet right now, but there's some story, and I'm not sure whether it's... Um, he doesn't have anything to do with the Yola Tango story, correct? I'm not so sure if Felix Mantia is part of that story. Uh, but what I will tell you about Felix Mantilla is my cousin's father played with him in the Winter League way back when. Uh, him, Eddie Lopat, a number of players. Uh, my oh, uncle wow. played He played with the ball back in the 50s. And uh, he passed away recently, and, and I regret, uh, both of us, me and my cousin both, we regret really not sitting down and documenting all his stories. Yeah. I hear that. You know, it's 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 unfortunate, but um, I I, I think we're gonna have to shoot a tweet to to Greg afterwards uh, and ask him for a little tidbit on Felix Man- Mantia. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody else you uh, you wanted to cover on this list? 
other than Jeremy Reed, of course. Yeah, uh, well, we covered Travis Darno, another wear of the uniform number. Uh, but I'll leave it at that. You know, we have some rather nondescript players on here. Benny Ayala deserves good mention. Uh, he goes back to those 70s teams. Uh, and he was funny. He was one of those guys that, you know, for every pick a player, for every Dave Parker, uh, there was like six Benny Ayalas to be had at a pack of baseball cards. He was another one of those. <laughs> Just kept on getting Benny Ayala after Benny Ayala after Ayala. It was funny. Uh, it's funny how that worked out. I wonder what the uh, conspiracy at Tops is for that. I'd, I'd be interested in to know. But uh, I have nothing more to add. If you don't have anything more to add about the list, uh, why don't we just go into our final word, buddy? Word. Daryl Strawberry owns that list. And uh segue to the final word. Um, hubris. Daryl Strawberry had, uh, you know, a lot of hubris when he decided to leave the Mets and go to the Dodgers. And he has admitted as much that he should have stayed. Um, I, I think that the circumstances may have led to hubris on both sides, letting him go, uh, being the reason why he, he left, um, egos clashing, if you will. And I hope, you know, we keep bringing it up that this, this team needs to take a good look at itself in the mirror. This ownership needs to take a good look at itself in the mirror. And we're going to keep saying it until they put a statue of Joan Payson uh, or the Mets win a couple World Series in a row, or all of the above, or none of the above. But we need some consistency here. We need a vision. We need some understanding of Mets history, and we need some. Uh, we need more than just hope for the first time in our 57 seasons. It's it's about time, or 58, or whatever it is now. I don't even know at this point, man. Like, get us May be seen now at this stage of our history and unfortunately our worst fears were realized it's yet again in ebb and a flow so just do it what else can I say you said you said it all my friend uh, I, I, I'm going to go back to something I said once way back when, my final word is actually the seven P's, which is proper prior planning prevents piss-poor performance. Uh, September is upon us. What, a day, two days away, whatever it is. Uh, There's no time like the future. Uh, The season hasn't ended yet, but there's no reason why you can't start putting out feelers to other teams and asking permission to start talking about potential executives. Uh, even with the postseason in play, if you look, uh, last year the Red Sox asked the Astros permission while the season was still ongoing, the postseason, that is, uh, for permission to talk to Alex Cora, which is to say it can be done. You don't have to wait till the last minute, hire someone, and then punt them into the winter meetings. September is here, so let's get these wheels in motion on trying to correct uh, this dumpster fire heading into the off-season, and it's the next season. So now, proper prior planning prevents piss-poor performance. It's September. Start getting those wheels in motion. Otherwise, you're just wasting time. Our time. Everyone's time. 
Right, Sam? <laughs> that's right. And that said, uh, good night to all you folks, good folks out there in Metsville. And uh, we hope to be back next week with another episode of a Metsian podcast. And until then, let's go Mets. And good night, everyone. Let's go Mets.